If you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, uh, continuing our time through the gospel according to Luke. We're on Luke chapter 5 today. We will finish out the chapter uh, in verses 33 through 39. We've been in Luke chapter 5. This morning will be our fifth week. And so since it's after chapter 5, it's our fifth week. We might as well bring it to a close and move on to chapter 6 next week, right? So in the book of Jeremiah 31, chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, the Lord declares this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, that, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Because of the changing circumstances, especially occasioned by Israel's sins, the religious history of Israel had been dotted with covenant renewals. Renewals under Moses in Exodus 34, under Joshua in Joshua 23 and 24, Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 through 31. Even as King Josiah led Judah the greatest in the greatest of all covenant renewals to remove idolatry and to reinstitute true worship in Judah, in accordance with the Mosaic Covenant that we see in 2 Chronicles 34, 3-7, it may have looked to many like the dawn of a new spiritual day for God's people had arrived. However, even such great revivals could not turn the tide of sins committed, and wrath deserved because of the extensiveness of sin and the greatness of that wrath. What was needed, as God revealed through Jeremiah in this particular chapter, in this passage, was not another covenant renewal, but an internal transformation of the people based upon the divine provision of complete forgiveness, a totally new covenant. This new covenant prophesied about so long ago, in the passage in which we just read, was brought to fruition through Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Emmanuel, God with us. And Luke's main emphasis in this passage that we're looking at today is eschatological. That is, Jesus brought with Him this new covenant that offers with it complete forgiveness through internal transformation free from external-based works, external works-based righteousness. And through the coming of Jesus, through the coming of Christ, the Son of the living God, God's kingdom has now been realized. The Anointed One has brought with Him the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. We see this in Luke 4.18. And the joy of the awaited age has indeed come. The new covenant is the gospel. The new covenant is not rooted in religious ritual. It's not rooted in law. The new covenant is rooted in a person, Jesus Christ. And so in today's text, we see Jesus state this very reality. 
The joy of the awaited age of the Messiah and Savior has come, and for those who know him, they should celebrate as if the wedding fe- as if at a wedding feast with great joy and with gladness. I'm afraid that too many church people, too many people who claim Christ, are among the most miserable people you've ever met. They have that Eeyore effect about them, right? Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh. Where everything is woe is me, and every time you turn around, they are mourning and sad about something. But as we will see today, for those who know the Lord, for those who have received the new covenant of grace through Jesus Christ, there is no room for fasting or mourning. Fasting for the purpose of sorrow and mourning. Now, there would come a brief time, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, where fasting would be appropriate, the ascension of Christ. But this, however, would pass quickly, and then even more than before, fasting for the purpose of mourning would be inappropriate as the church lives in the joy of the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. What fasting there will be in the new covenant has nothing to do with sorrow and mourning of the old, but hopeful anticipation for the return of Jesus. May we this morning, church, joyfully rejoice in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, because He has come, bringing with Him the kingdom of God, inaugurating a new covenant in which the law is written on our hearts, bringing salvation to all who repent of their sins and believe in Him, a covenant of unending grace. If you are able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. The Word of God reads in Luke chapter 5, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins." And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Would you pray with me? God, we need your help this morning. As we approach this text, that at first glance might be a bit perplexing, confusing, interesting. God, we need your Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We need your Spirit to give us clarity, to give us discernment and wisdom as we consider this truth that you've given us. We need your guidance as we navigate the wonder of the new covenant opposed to what is being promoted as old in this text. But God, more than anything this morning, we need to see Jesus. We need to see the beauty of who Christ is, what Christ has done. 
We need to see the reality of what characterizes His people as He has come bringing with Him the kingdom of God. And God, we need to be transformed by the power of Your Word. We believe that You will do this for us and in us, and we trust that Your Spirit will accomplish the task of the triune God in transforming us more into the image of Christ as You preserve us until the day of Christ's return and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So verse 33, as we have picked up in this text, continues with the scene that started in verse 27. We considered the previous passage last week, and we saw Jesus call another disciple, Levi, who we know is also known as Matthew, who is a tax collector. Levi responds as all of those who receive the effectual call of Christ. He leaves everything to follow Jesus, leaving behind everything in order to follow Christ. And so following Christ, as we thought through, uh, means allegiance to Christ above all else. Following Christ means a willingness to forsake everything if that is what Jesus would have you to do in order to follow Him. And so far, as we've seen Jesus call to Him some disciples already, some of His twelve, All of these disciples called by Jesus do that very thing. They leave everything behind for the purpose of following Christ. And now, as Levi is transformed by Jesus through this effectual call of Christ, he wants all of his co-workers, he wants all of his friends to know Jesus, to meet Jesus. And so what he does, as we saw last week, is throws this big party. He has a big feast in which he invites all of these other tax collectors and sinners. Now remember, again, Levi was a tax collector, meaning he most likely accrued some level of wealth by stealing from his Jewish brethren by taking a little off the top, if you, uh, if you think about it that way. And so let's not forget, tax collectors were the worst of the worst among the people of Israel. They were despised because they betrayed their own countrymen to work for the Roman Empire, the very ones who were occupying their land and oppressing them. And so tax collectors were notorious for being in cahoots with the bad guy, collecting taxes for the bad guy, but then collecting more than what was due, taking some for themselves, and then accruing some wealth along the way. And so now here is Jesus, the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, at this big feast with all tax collectors and sinners. And this is where the passage picks up today. We remember last week there were some Pharisees and scribes that were looking in, present among what was going on, and they began to question the disciples as to why Jesus was eating with people such as this. Why is this religious leader, why is this one who's teaching about God communing with the worst of the worst, with sinners such as these? And so here we are in today's text. And the Pharisees, assuming the Pharisees, questioned Jesus as they were put out by his association with these known sinners. How could Jesus spend time with these people? But that was not the end of their distress. They continued in their critical attitude toward Jesus and his practices, the practices of their disciples. And so as we move through this passage, let me make my first observation from this text. Man-centered religious ritual has no room for Christ. Man-centered religious ritual has no room for Christ, no room for Jesus. Look at verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So as this passage opens up, 
this other question posed about Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's not entirely sure who is asking this question. Some say it's unidentified partygoers. Others say Pharisees. It just depends on who you're reading and what you're uh, looking at. I tend to lean toward the Pharisees based upon the nature of the question and based upon the previous text. And so I'm going to pose it as if the Pharisees are asking this question. Uh, If you have a differing opinion, that's fine. Uh, You can tell me later. Uh, However... Regardless of who the question is coming from, the underlying emphasis of the question is the same. Someone wants to know why Jesus, this religious person, and why Jesus' disciples seem to neglect the pharisaical tradition of fasting or John the Baptist's ascetic practice of fasting. Now, these two are very different things. There's not much known about what John the Baptist's practices are necessarily, but it's believed that there's some sort of mix between old tradition and new covenant tradition, this, that, and the other. And so we're going to take John's view of fasting, whatever that might be. Remember, this is the guy that's also eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness. So, you know, there's no telling what that is. We're going to take John's and kind of sit it on the shelf and focus primarily on what we do know, this pharisaical tradition of fasting. And so why are Jesus' disciples so different? Now, we have to understand a little about the Pharisees and scribes in order to rightly uh, gather what is coming through with this question. And so some of this information we covered last week, but in order, it will be a good reminder to kind of revisit that and then add a little uh, insight to that. So Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders of Israel. We've established that. We know that pretty well. They place supreme importance supreme importance on fidelity to the Old Testament law. They did this so much so that they ended up taking the law and making it something different. But particularly, the problem they found themselves in, in that taking of the law and making it different, that as they took the Old Testament, as they understood it, they prescribed all sorts of applications and further advancements that they believe needed to be applied in the lives of those who all would faithfully follow Jesus. In other words, here's what the Pharisees and scribes did. This is good. We think the Old Testament law is good, they would say. We like the law. We believe the law. We think the law is true and right. But let's add a few things to that to really ensure that people do not get anywhere even close to breaking the law. It's almost like the speed limit out here on Highway 98 being 65, and then all of our uh, patrolmen go, you know, 65 is good, but in order to keep people from getting to 65, I think we should enforce it at 55, and so they start writing tickets for 55, lest you break the law at 65. It's saying that is good, but let's add a little something to that for the purpose of making sure you don't even get anywhere close to that. And so the Pharisees were doing something very similar. Let's ensure that people do not get close to breaking the law. And then, instead of the law being truth, the additional rules and the additional rituals added by the Pharisees took the law's place. It wasn't the law any longer that was the standard or measure of righteousness. It was the man-made traditions, the man-made rituals that the Pharisees and scribes then conjured up that had to be followed. So what God never prescribed as law, the Pharisees now prescribed as law. Therefore, what they sought to apply on the people of Israel was man-made religious ritual. 
that did nothing but constrain the hearts of the people. Now, it's important to make this distinction lest we look at the Old Testament law in a derogatory manner. Remember this. Don't forget this. The Old Testament law is God's law. The Old Testament law is right and good and perfect because God has given it. So Jesus, in this instance, is not looking at the Old Testament law and saying that that is bad. Jesus would never show up on the scene and say the Old Testament law is worthless and bad because that's His law. He would not say that my perfect, right, righteous, good law is worthless and bad. That's not what's happening here. We need to make that very, very clear. Because we, in New Testament people, it's easy for us to look at the law and go, law bad. No, law is good. Law is right. Law, for the Jews, was a means by which they could know God and what God asked of them and requires of them in a way in which they could be holy and righteous and blameless before Him through all of these things. And so that's not what we're talking about here. We know in the Old Covenant, one is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, just like they are in the New, the new Covenant. There is grace in the Old Testament law. But where there is no grace is in the man-made religious rituals constructed by the Pharisees. There's no grace in that. That's what we're talking about. And so the question here pertained to fasting and prayer. Why are Jesus' disciples eating and drinking when they should be fasting and praying? Why are Jesus' disciples so happy? Why are they joyful? Why are they enjoying life? Why are they at a party? Why are they feasting? Why are they having good food and good drink and cutting up and carrying on? Doesn't sound so bad to me. In the Old Testament, God commanded the people of Israel fast on one occasion. The Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. But the rest of the year, fasting was a matter of voluntary activity. And yet the Pharisees and the scribes created new laws that God hadn't imposed upon His people. They created their own traditions. And their tradition sought to require Jews to fast twice a week for at least a portion of the day. Once a year for God, the rest voluntary Pharisees twice a week. Not only that, but in their zeal for righteousness, they began to teach the idea that fasting was such a righteous enterprise that it would bring merit to the person who fasted. And so this is just one more element of the Pharisees' attempt at self-justification. And we know from Matthew's account of a different encounter that these Pharisees would walk around fasting and let everybody know they're fasting because they looked so stinking miserable because they weren't eating. Now, there is a term that we use in the church to refer to this type of behavior. You're familiar with the term legalist? Legalistic or legalism? And the first mark of a legalist is substituting the traditions of men for the law of God. Man-made religious ritual is gospel truth. The legalist legislates where God leaves people free. The legalist legislates where God leaves people free. The legalist takes, the, takes places that say you may and turns it into you must, which is absolutely fatal to the healthy Christian life. The Pharisees considered themselves the board standard of righteousness and of religious devotion, yet here they were the very fathers of legalism. They weren't zealous to conserve the law of God. They were zealous to conserve their own traditions, their own rituals. Now, there are two important notes of parallel I want to make here. 
there is a tendency within many churches and many congregations, especially churches that have been established for some time, seasoned, older churches, there is a tendency to hold tightly to man-made religious ritual or tradition. There is a tendency to take certain traditions and elevate them to the place of canon scripture. Now, don't hear me wrong. Tradition can be a good thing. I think it's important to preserve a church's heritage when necessary. But I think it's dangerous to hold so tightly to tradition that it's almost as if the church tradition or the man-made ritual itself is on the same plane with Scripture. All preferential, no doubt. And I can assure you, if you want to dust things up in some older churches, and, you know, we see this... Uh, quite often, have a new pastor walk in and say the word change. One word, and the whole roof will fall in. They'll show them the door so fast. Tell guys all the time going to new churches, say, don't do anything for the first five years. Just preach the word and love the people. We know of many churches who have had great controversy over traditions surrounding music Musical instruments, hymn books, what people wear, pews or chairs, carpet, and on and on and on the list goes. For some reason, music's always at the top of that list, by the way. That's the sacred cow. I don't know if you know that or not. So let's be careful lest we fall into the camp of the Pharisees, elevating ritual and tradition to a place of Scripture. We don't care about preserving human traditions just because they're traditions, but we do care about preserving what is biblical what is right and true as preserved in Scripture, as given in Scripture. Secondly, we do not want to fall into the trap of carrying out man-made traditions or ritual in pursuit of our own justification. Well, I went to church Sunday morning for Sunday school. I went church. I went, I went for the service. I went on Sunday night, went to a small group. I went Wednesday night. I did all of these things. God must be happy with me now. This, in essence, is what the Pharisees did, and it led to their own self-righteousness. And when we start relying on something other than the finished work of Christ for our justification before God, we're walking down a lonely and sad road. Why? Because we will never measure up. You will not sing in Christ alone because you don't believe it. We will never measure up. Man-made tradition and religious ritual make lousy saviors as they will always leave you in failure. There will be a time, most days, when we fail to fulfill one of the obligations that either someone or ourselves has placed on us, which will then lead us to despair. Maybe you find yourself struggling in the Christian life. Maybe you find yourself empty because you're relying on your own efforts and your own hard work for spiritual satisfaction instead of running to Christ. Save yourself the trouble, Christian. Do not trust in your own works or your own religious ritual, but trust in Christ, Christ alone. It's the beauty of the gospel. Second observation. Knowing Christ is characterized by pleasure and joy. Look at verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, Jesus responding, Can you make a wedding guest fast? Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus responds, and as he's responding, he gives the first of three illustrations. He tells us about a wedding, he tells us about some old and new fabric, and he tells us about some old and new wineskins. And so this response is what causes me to really, when you, when you approach this text, kind of shake my head a little and think to myself, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What is fabric? What is a wedding? What do wine and wineskins have to do with, with what he's telling uh, these partygoers, these Pharisees about himself and why he has come? It's a little, it's a little confusing in today's terminology. Well, Jewish weddings were quite the spectacle, all right? They consisted of three basic phases. First, there was a contract when the parents of the bride and the groom agreed that their children would marry and the bride price was given to the father of the bride. And when the contract was completed, according to Jewish law, that effectively began the marriage, although the couple did not yet live together as husband and wife. We considered this earlier when we talked about the relationship of Mary being betrothed to uh, Joseph. Second, there was an indefinite period of time when the groom returned to his father's house to prepare a place for he and his future bride. And during this time, the bride would wait and the bride would watch for the return of the groom. It could happen at any time. As soon as this place was completed, as soon as their home was built, he could return and then the wedding ceremony would begin. But everything had to be prepared, and the father of the bride had to give permission to the groom before he could return for his bride and begin the actual celebration. There was a time of great anticipation, of great waiting. Can you imagine sitting at the window? Is today the day? What's it going to happen? You couldn't just send a text or call him. When's he coming? I hope he looks the same when he gets here. I don't know. Who knows how long that time is gone? And then third, the wedding celebration began. And this celebration wasn't just a one-and-done night where we have a big party and spend a bunch of money. It was a seven-day event. Most weddings lasted seven days. Marked seven days of dancing. Baptist, seven days of dancing. Seven days of music. Seven days of food. Seven days of, of drink. Some of you parents who have had children get married are going... It cost me a fortune just for one day. I can't imagine seven. Then the consummation of the marriage as the husband and wife would then begin living together. So this celebration, this anticipation and the celebration is the backdrop of Jesus' response to the question. Celebration, pleasure, and joy. The bridegroom has come. Let the party begin. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you go to this great celebration where there's dancing, celebration, music, food, and drink, and look at your guest and say, you can't eat until we leave? Fast. Israel voluntarily fasted for two reasons throughout Scripture. Natural grief, national grief, mourning, sorrow, great defeat, lamenting. They would be downtrodden and call for a communal fast for repentance of sin and need for God's mercy in the midst of great calamity. Another reason would be for a pursuit of holiness, a desire to see God, a desire to serve God, a desire to press in and know God. Still reasons why many fast today in the New Covenant. Good reasons. 
And they sound noble on the surface, and they certainly are. But what Jesus is saying here is that you guys, he's saying this to the religious people, you guys are so consumed with your own righteousness that you attempt to demonstrate through your fasting, but I, the Son of God, I am here. The bridegroom has come to Israel. I am here, yet you do not see me because of your dead ritual. This is a wedding where the bridegroom has come to Israel and you are treating it like a funeral, Jesus is saying. And the reason they're treating it like a funeral is because they're so blinded by the conditions they had placed on their service to God that they could not see the Savior who had come. Blinded by their man-made conditions that they had placed on their service to God that they couldn't even see Jesus right before them. Imagine a crowd moping around at a funeral, at a wedding. Jesus is saying to them, there's no reason for fasting. Think of the reason you are fasting. You fast because you want to know God. Well, guess what? Emmanuel is here. God with us in the flesh is here. I am here and you do not know me. You fast because of some great sorrow that comes your way, because of some great affliction that has come down upon you. Well, I am here and I am the one who brings healing to these afflictions and yet you fail to see me. Church, hear this. This is a warning for us to beware of thinking that our service to God or beware of thinking that our communion with God Beware of thinking it as, it as being something that constrains our hearts to the point to where we're no longer captivated by the Jesus who has come. We're so focused on what we're doing that we lose sight of Jesus. We're not captivated by Jesus. Jesus is coming. The bridegroom's coming was a time of joy and indulgence, not gloom and denial. Just as with wedding, a wedding celebration, it is a time of feasting. It's a time of thanksgiving and rejoicing. It's a time characterized by pleasure and by joy. Just as Israel was the bride of God in the Old Testament, so the, the New Testament church is the bride of Christ, and He's the bridegroom who'd been promised for centuries before. And now He has come. He has come for His bride. And when the bridegroom is here, you don't fast, you don't mourn, you don't rend your garments, you rejoice and you throw a party. Church, a very basic question for us to take here is, is your relationship with Christ characterized by pleasure and joy? Is your relationship with Jesus characterized by pleasure and joy? Or by dead, man-made religious ritual? Again, there are so many Christians who seem to be the most miserable people you ever meet, and it, and it is true, and we, you, you probably have someone in your mind. But listen, listen, I'm not downplaying the reality that we live in a fallen world. I'm not talking about fake joy and happiness where the good church answer, you know, how you doing? I'm doing great, you know, whatever, even though your house burned down like the day before, right? We all know this life very well. Life is difficult. Life is tough. Life is hard. Because of sin, we feel the effects through various troubles each and every day. Yet as those who know Jesus, we have a different outlook than the world has. While we do not put on superficial smiles and act like everything is just peachy all the time, we do have an underlying joy about us that comes with knowing Christ, that comes with knowing that the bridegroom has come to claim His bride. The bridegroom has come. Salvation is here. We have this Jesus, and along with knowing Christ comes pleasure and joy forevermore. 
we know that we can find pleasure and joy in this life as we seek Christ above all else and enjoy the things around us that he's blessed us with. Christian, you can have fun. You can do fun things. You can be happy. You can eat good food and drink good drink. You can be entertained by various things in this life. You can find great pleasure in the things in this world that God has graciously blessed us with to find pleasure in. You can go on vacation, and it's okay. Because we know that our ultimate pleasure and fulfillment is not found in those things, it's found in Christ. And when it's found in Christ, those things are put in a proper perspective that really, really enables us to enjoy them all the more. But Jesus says there will be a time when His people fast. As long as Jesus is with them, His disciples should celebrate. Now's not the time for mourning and hopeful anticipation. Fasting will be appropriate, however, Jesus says. After Jesus is taken from from them at his crucifixion and ascension, and for a time, for at that time, Jesus' followers will once again be in a period of anticipation, this time of return. They're not fasting in sorrow or mourning. They're fasting in victory and hopeful anticipation. That's why in the early church, after the departure of Jesus, there was a great revival of voluntary fasting among Christians. During times of persecution, when Christians were being thrown to the lions and suffering, their believers would pray and fast for them. At the same time, there was a different attitude behind it, though. Opposed to great mourning, sorrow, and dead ritual, there was joy in the finished work of Christ and hope in His imminent return. Third observation. Jesus began a new era. Look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. The arrival of Jesus changed everything. The arrival of Christ changed everything. And to illustrate uh, the implications of this truth, Jesus tells them a parable to the effect that no one cuts a piece of cloth from a new shirt in order to patch up an old shirt. That makes sense. Otherwise, you would end up with two ruined shirts, is what he's saying. The two fabrics do not function in harmony with one another. And additionally, he points out that no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins were made from animal hides. And when they were new, they were very elastic in nature. And after they were used for a while, they became brittle. And new wine would expand during the process of fermentation. And while a new wineskin would be able to stretch to accommodate the the growth, the old wineskins would almost certainly burst because they'd become brittle and hardened. And so with this second parable, the Lord teaches us that a new era has arrived. There is significant change in the administration of God's saving purposes in the world. Judaism is the old garment and the old skins. Jesus is coming and His ministry and His followers are the new garment and the new one and the new skins. Jesus hasn't come to patch up the things that were missing in the Jewish religion. Even the religion of the most pious people like the Pharisees. The point that Jesus is making is that His arrival has brought something new, a new covenant and a new reason to celebrate like guests at a wedding. And the the salvation that Jesus has come to bring 
demands fresh things about what it means to live as God's people. And so the old and the new do not mix or match. You cannot pour Christ into the old wineskins of the Mosaic, the Mosaic Law. He bursts those skins, and you lose Christ. And so Jesus is saying, in essence, you have your Old Testament law, which as we know is good and right and perfect. You have your Old Testament practices that you think are serving for your development in the faith, which we know have been added to by the Pharisees. And yet you've hijacked them and led others astray to the point that you can't see that they're all pointing to me. You've changed them so much that you've missed who they're about, what they're about. The new has come. Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament, and it's going to burst on your law because your hearts are constrained to the law to the point that you can't be captivated by me because you're captivated by ritual. We cannot have the gospel with a little touch of law and legalism. And we cannot have law with just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in either. The gospel is an entirely different garment that Jesus is bringing. The gospel requires fresh wineskins of New Testament Christianity. And those who drink man-made religion and religious ritual, they will not be able to tolerate nor desire the new wine, he says in 39, because their justification is in themselves. And you know what's fascinating about this? In our day, I don't think many of us struggle with an overemphasis of the law and the Pharisees in our own life. I don't, think, I don't think necessarily that's always the case. In our day, we perhaps overemphasize secondary or tertiary issues when, we, when you have entire churches or Christians that will segregate from others because of all sorts of things. Now, these are important issues, but something may not be necessarily worth breaking fellowship over. And these secondary or tertiary issues become means by which we think that our faith is reliant opposed to our faith informing how we interpret these issues. You see the difference here? Something that is reliant opposed to informed by. And the danger that we might face more precisely is prescribing to a form of Christianity that does not challenge our lives to seeing our need for Jesus and, being so, and, and so being transformed by the gospel. And so in, in this sense, we can become constrained by the need to puff up our own view of ourselves with an unwillingness to admit our own sinfulness and an unwillingness to acknowledge that we actually need Jesus. And in our day and age, when one of the greatest offenses that we can do in the spirit of our age is to admit that I need something beyond me, that I don't have all the answers in myself, that there is healing that I can't find through greater self-esteem, or harder work of my own, I actually need Jesus to work on me. So I think that's where the more precise danger is for us in regards to constraining our hearts where we believe that the solution to our problems is within ourselves, much like the Pharisees and their rules. If we will just try harder or work harder is what we naturally say. But Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not it. It's not the answer. That which we build up for our own protection can actually become our own prison. Here we have the Pharisees. They're so law-oriented. 
They're literally fasting multiple times a week and thinking they're serving God, thinking it's for their own protection, but it's become their prison because they've closed their eyes from being able to see Jesus. And if we so concern ourselves with building our own righteousness or so concern ourselves with thinking that the answers to our greatest problems are found within us, then we are no different from the Pharisees who thought the answers to their problems were found in their resolve for fasting. We can do a lot of things, church. We can do a, you can do a lot. We can do a lot of good things for Christ's kingdom and within the church. But if our motivation is improving upon our own righteousness, our works are worthless. And they leave us empty. Only when our eyes are able to look outward does our self-righteousness be moved to the side and it's no longer the prison and we're able to see Jesus. Jesus' willingness to enjoy a party scandalized the people of his day. They seemed to expect that a respected religious leader should strive to be serious and strict, abstaining from pleasure. But Jesus went to parties. Jesus ate and drank. He even speaks of himself as a bridegroom at a wedding celebration. But only the people who saw their acute spiritual need could rejoice at the salvation that Jesus was bringing. For others who were quite content with themselves and with their religion, this new wine was no cause of celebration. The things in the ceremonial law were fulfilled by Jesus. So there is no need for sacrifices, no need for priests, temples, or ceremonies. All of God's people are priests who bring spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. The tables of the law have been replaced by the tables of the human heart, where God's Spirit is writing the Word and make, make us, is making us like Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers, still offers, all things new. As the physician, He offers sinners new life and spiritual health. As the bridegroom, He brings new love and joy. He gives us the robe of righteousness and the wine of the Spirit, making our hearts glad. Life is a feast. It's not a famine. It's not a funeral. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can make that kind of difference in our lives. Let's rejoice in Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and be freed from joyless, man-made dead ritual. Pray with me.